Hello, and welcome to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin this week's episode, I have a couple of announcements to make first regarding the show. As I'm sure you no doubt noticed, the podcast has undergone a sort of rebranding. From now on, the podcast formerly known as Historia Dramatica will be the Perspectives in History podcast. This change is merely an aesthetic one and will in no way affect the content of the show going forward, nor will any drastic changes be made to previous content. The podcast will remain the same show that you are already familiar with. Now, I'm sure you're wondering why I decided to make such a change. And the answer is that this decision mainly came down to a personal preference. I will admit that when I originally decided on a name for the podcast, way back in the autumn of 2020, I chose Historia Dramatica because I thought it sounded vaguely Latin, only to find out that it's actually closer to Spanish than anything else, really. I feel like with this new name, the podcast might more easily reach English-speaking audiences. Which is not to say that I have anything against any listeners who might speak Spanish, it's just that this podcast isn't really narrated in that language. Anyway, I originally intended to carry out this rebrand at the same time that I came out of hiatus last month, but not everything was ready by that point. On a technical note, the name change may affect the podcast's feed on whichever listening platform you use. There are still a few technical kinks that I'm trying to work out on my end, to make sure that if you were subscribed to the podcast previously, the feed will be redirected to the current one. I should have this sorted out shortly, so please bear with me. Anyway, with that announcement out of the way, let's begin today's narrative. Previously in our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we mainly discussed the events of the year 1497. At the beginning of this year, Savonarola seemed to be on the ascent. He had openly defied the Pope, Alexander VII, and suffered very few consequences. His mission to reform the post-Medician government of Florence was continuing apace, and he had successfully rallied the city's population to defend their precious republican institutions against the return of Lorenzo the Magnificent's son, Piero. In February 1497, Savonarola celebrated what was perhaps his greatest triumph, the Bonfire of the Vanities. Seeking to purge the city of all vice, Savonarola had mobilized an army of young boys to rove the streets of Florence, with the purpose of confiscating various items that the friar considered to be invitations to sin, gambling paraphernalia, beauty supplies, secular writings and artworks, and so on. All these vanities, as he called them, were brought to a massive bonfire at the Piazza della Signoria in the center of the city and burned in a spectacular display of outward virtue. However, not all was well in the city that Savonarola had dubbed his New Jerusalem. Adverse weather conditions had led to a poor harvest that year, which in turn led to near-famine conditions. The price of grain skyrocketed and average people struggled to feed themselves. An influx of peasant refugees from the countryside had reintroduced the plague to the city, for which there was still no known cure. Throughout the year, the apothecary and diarist Luca Landucci reported several instances that he witnessed of people simply dying in the streets, whether it be from plague or from starvation. Florence's prospects on the geopolitical side of things were looking just as bleak. For the better part of the last three years, Florence had been fighting a war to retake the rebellious city of Pisa, to no avail. The war had resulted in hundreds of casualties and strained the Republic's economy near the breaking point. At this juncture, nearly all the other states of Italy had adopted a hostile stance towards the Republic of Florence. 
Their only ally was the Kingdom of France, with whom they had sided when King Charles VIII invaded the Italian peninsula three years prior. Hopes of a renewed French offensive were dashed when, in February 1497, news reached Florence that the French king had signed a treaty with the coalition of Italian states known as the Holy League. This development was a particularly welcome one to Pope Alexander VII, as it meant that he now had been given a free hand to punish Florence and its de facto leader, the renegade friar Girolamo Savonarola. The friar's constant stream of invective against the corruption of the Catholic Church had certainly earned him no friends in Rome, but what had truly raised the ire of the Pope was Florence's refusal to join the Holy League, for which he laid the blame squarely upon Savonarola and his malign influence on the city's politics. Now that he no longer had to fear French intervention, Alexander VII brought the full might of his authority to bear upon Savonarola and issued a writ of excommunication against him in mid-1497. Despite the grim prospect of being effectively disbarred from the church, Savonarola continued to exhibit an optimistically defiant attitude towards Rome. He remained utterly convinced that the reform of the Catholic Church was an inevitability, and that he would be the one to lead the charge. Savonarola's opponents, meanwhile, regarded his excommunication as the beginning of the end for the friar, and very soon afterwards, all the immoral behaviors which Savonarola had worked so hard to curb began to reappear in the city. Savonarola's opponents included a number of prominent men in Florentine society, including most of the members of the Signoria, the executive body of the Republic. Savonarola's excommunication had put the Signoria in a rather difficult position. To begin with, they were anxious to put the Republic back in the Pope's good graces, seeing this as the only way that they might be able to bring the war against Pisa to a decisive conclusion. The Pope's blessing, however, was predicated upon two conditions. One, Florence's joining the Holy League, and two, the handover of Savonarola to papal authority. While on a personal level, the men of the Signoria likely would have wanted nothing more than to be rid of this troublesome priest once and for all, Savonarola still remained very popular among a wide swath of Florence's population. Such an action was liable to shatter the fragile peace which existed between the city's political factions. All the while, Savonarola had shut himself within the confines of his cell in the convent of San Marco. He wrote tirelessly to defend himself against accusations that he was a heretic and a schismatic. In a series of open letters addressed to all faithful Christians, Savonarola had rather convincingly laid out the case that he had been excommunicated without either evidence or a trial, and that the writ was therefore invalid. In this time, he also wrote what many considered to be his magnum opus, a treatise entitled The Triumph of the Cross. In this work, Savonarola expertly laid out the justification for the ultimate truth of Christianity in a way that was so empirical that it is now considered to be somewhat ahead of its time. The beginning of the new year marked six months since Savonarola had last delivered one of his famous sermons, or had even been seen in public. As the season of Lent quickly approached, rumors began to spread that the friar was planning to openly defy the Pope and take to the pulpit once again. When asked by a Ferrari's ambassador if there's any truth to these rumors, Savonarola cryptically replied that he would resume preaching when he received a sign from those who were able to command him. Naturally, the ambassador assumed that Savonarola was referring either to the Signoria or to the Pope, but Savonarola quickly clarified that he was actually referring to God himself. In February 1498, it seemed that Savonarola had received the sign from above that he was waiting for, and on the 11th of that month, 
he set out from the safety of San Marco for the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore, escorted by his usual accompaniment of armed bodyguards. His loyal congregation was overjoyed at his return, and upon his entry into the cathedral, they immediately began to sing a popular hymn entitled, We Praise Thee, O God. With his usual stoic demeanor, Savonarola humbly replied that he was unworthy of such a reception, being as he was but dust and ashes. It can be assumed that this crowd was some degree smaller than those who had flocked to hear him in years past. Landucci reports that many were hesitant to attend, fearing that they may be excommunicated by their association with Savonarola, and that he himself was among those who did not go out of such a fear. Preaching to those who had been brave enough to risk excommunication just to hear his words, Savonarola began to expound on that day's biblical subject, which was the book of Exodus. This book of the Bible contains the story of Moses, who led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. Just as the Israelites, the elect nation of God, had been saved from the wrath of the Pharaoh, so too would Florence, God's new elect nation, be saved from its own enemies. Savonarola, of course, cast himself in the role of Moses and Alexander VII as the Pharaoh. He, as the allegorical Moses, was both the spiritual and political leader of the allegorical Israelites, i.e. the Florentines. However, the allegorical Pharaoh, i.e. the Pope, had sought to silence his voice. Nonetheless, determined to fulfill God's divine plan, he must be allowed to preach to his people. Then, dispensing with this allegory, Savonarola then addressed the subject at hand directly, his excommunication. Regarding the authority of the Pope, Savonarola began to use another extended metaphor, quote, A governor of the church is a tool of God, but if he is not used as such, he is a broken tool. He is no greater than any man. Therefore, you may say to him, you do no good, because you do not let yourself be guided by the Lord. And if he says, I have the power, you may say to him, that is not true, because there is no hand guiding you, and you are but a broken tool. End quote. Now dispensing with this metaphor, Savonarola began to launch into a personal attack on the Pope, quote, What was the purpose of those who lied in order that I should be excommunicated? Once my excommunication was announced, they once more abandoned themselves to excessive eating and drinking, to greed of all kinds, to consorting with concubines, to the sale of indulgences, and to all manner of lies and wickedness. On whose side will thou be, O Christ, on the side of truth or lies? After all, Christ says, I am the truth. End quote. Around this time, some of Savonarola's more youthful and daring opponents put into motion a rather audacious plot against him. The group responsible for this were known as the Compagnacci, which translates roughly as the Rude Companions or the Ugly Companions. Their plan was to rig the cathedral's pulpit with explosives and to blow up the friar as he preached. To this end, they hired the services of one local explosives expert, but when they realized that some of their friends and family members might also be caught in the blast, they backed down. Seeing as how this abortive plot was concocted about a hundred years before Guy Fawkes' gunpowder plot in England, it would have been the first terrorist bombing in the history of Europe. Of course, it is worth inquiring as to what exactly motivated such a drastic action. Did these rude companions hope to save Florence from the dangers which Savonarola posed by his continued defiance of the Pope? Most historians suggest that their motives were not so selfless. Seeing as how most of the conspirators hailed from Florence's upper classes, it is more likely that their hedonistic tendencies simply stood in opposition to Savonarola's asceticism. 
Nevertheless, the whole incident should be interpreted as an illustration of the new heights to which political division had risen in Florence during this time. Some of Savonarola's less brash opponents, particularly those in the Augustinian and Franciscan orders, took to less drastic measures. Instead of plotting terrorist actions, they instead dutifully relayed word of Savonarola's most recent actions to Rome, where the Pope was quite predictably enraged by the news. He summoned Alessandro Bracci and Domenico Bonsi to appear before him at court. These were Florence's two ambassadors to the Papal States, and two of them had fallen quite the unenviable task of mollifying the cantankerous Pope. Bracci quoted the Pope as saying, quote, So, you are allowing Father Girolamo to preach again. I never would have believed that you would treat me so. End quote. Later that day, Bonsi wrote a letter to the Signoria stating, quote, I am being attacked on all sides by cardinals and prelates, who have come to complain in the strongest possible fashion about the behavior of your excellencies in allowing Savonarola to preach. They all tell me of the Pope's great anger in this matter. You have enemies all over Rome, who are doing their best to whip up feelings against you. End quote. Apparently, it wasn't just verbal attacks that the two diplomats had to worry about. One night, a group of armed men broke into Bonsi's residence in Rome, prompting the diplomat to flee for his life. When news reached Alexander VII that Savonarola had appeared in public for a second time on February 17th, he instructed the unfortunate diplomats to relay word to the Signoria that if they did not take immediate action to silence Savonarola, that he would place the entire city under interdict, tantamount to a collective, city-wide excommunication. Additionally, the Pope clarified that more than just spiritual chastisement, could be in order for the city if they continued to defy his will. The Florentines risked facing the military might of the Holy League. The fact that the Pope could still issue a call to arms, to which the majority of the other Italian states would be compelled to respond, was a fact that was surely not lost on the Florentines. Even as the couriers raced northward to Florence to deliver this latest, most urgent missive from the Pope, Savonarola continued to preach in public and his every opportunity, and as the danger increased, so too did his utterances become more and more melodramatic. Shrove Tuesday, the day before the beginning of Lent, quickly arrived. That morning, Savonarola conducted the Mass, during which he made a number of strange pronouncements. For instance, at the moment before he began to give the Eucharist, he called out, quote, I bid you all pray fervently to the Lord that if this work be not inspired by him, that he will send down his fires to bear me straight to hell. End quote. Later that day, he intended to repeat his display of the previous year, of a bonfire of the vanities, although the sources suggest that this year's affair was met with a more mixed reception than it had been previously. There are several reports of Savonarola's boys being attacked in the streets as they went around attempting to confiscate vanities. The boys' white garments were violently torn from their backs, and they were pelted with rocks and excrement, as the citizens of Florence were generally more resistant towards attempts at confiscation. Nevertheless, Landucci reported, quote, There was made at the Piazza della Signoria a large pile of vain things, nude statues, playing boards, heretical books and poems, and many other vanities of great value, estimated at several thousand florins. A few days later, on March 1st, a new Signoria was elected, which had a narrow Arabiati majority. They immediately passed down an interdict forbidding Savonarola from preaching at the Santa Maria del Fiore. This represented only a half-measure, but this time Savonarola intended to obey. That same day, he took to the pulpit of the cathedral to announce that he was taking his leave. 
He explained to his congregation that it was the most prudent thing to do to stand down so as to avoid inciting further public scandal. This did not mean that he was done preaching. However, he would simply relocate his preaching to San Marco for the foreseeable future. These following sermons were, by virtue of their location, more restrictive, and naturally fewer people attended them. One person who was able to watch these sessions, which would be among the last public utterances given by Savonarola, was a 29-year-old scholar named Niccolò Machiavelli. At this time, Machiavelli had yet to embark on his famed political career, nor had he begun to write the works for which he remains most famous today, but he had already developed a keen interest in political events. He wrote a brief account of Savonarola's most recent behaviors to a friend in Rome, quote, He invited all his followers to take communion in San Marco on the day of Carnival. He said that he would pray to God to give him a very clear sign if the things that he predicted did not come from him. On the day that the new Signoria was announced on February 26th, he figured it to be more than two-thirds hostile towards him. Afraid that the new government would immediately obey the Pope's brief summoning him to Rome under penalty of an interdict, he decided, either on his own or on advice from friends, to withdraw to San Marco. Once our friar found himself in his own house, you would marvel more than a little if you heard how boldly he goes on with his sermons. Feeling himself very unsafe and believing the news to be bent on doing him harm, and figuring that many citizens would be ruined along with him, he began saying many terrifying things, very believable to anyone who didn't examine them carefully. He said that God had told him that there was someone in Florence who wished to make himself a tyrant, and was holding secret meetings to bring this about. And he said that trying to drive him out, to excommunicate him, and to persecute him could only bring about this tyranny. But after the Signoria wrote to Rome on his behalf, he saw that he no longer had to fear his enemies in Florence. Whereas previously he only sought to unify his party by badmouthing his opponents and to frighten them using the word tyrant, now he sees he no longer has to do that and has changed his tune. Exhorting them to unity and making no mention of their tyranny or wickedness, he tries to set them all against the supreme pontiff, saying things one might say of the most wicked man there is. And so he goes, in my judgment, adjusting to the times and coloring his lies. End quote. It was around this time that the Pope's message, threatening to place the city under interdict, arrived in Florence. It was now that Savonarola felt his hand was forced to play his trump card. He took it upon himself to write a circular letter to the most prominent Christian rulers of Europe, including the Holy Roman Emperor, the King and Queen of Spain, and the Kings of France, England, and Hungary. Banking on the hope that word of Pope Alexander VII's unchristian behavior had spread far beyond the confines of the Italian peninsula, Savonarola proposed to each of these monarchs that a council of the church be held to remove the Pope from office. In this letter, he makes a number of bombastic claims and defends them by claiming that this information was, in fact, revealed to him by God himself. Quote, The time to avenge our disgrace is at hand, and the Lord commands me to expose new secrets, revealing to all the world the perilous waters into which the ship of St. Peter has sailed. Such circumstances are due to your lengthy neglect of such matters. The church is filled with abominations from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet. And yet, not only do you neglect to cure her of her ailments, but instead you pay homage to the very source of the evils which pollute her. Wherefore, the Lord is greatly angered, and has long left the church without a shepherd. I now hereby testify, 
in the word of the Lord that Alexander is no pope, nor can he be regarded as such. Aside from the mortal sin of simony, by means of which he purchased the papal throne, and daily sells church benefices to the highest bidder, as well as ignoring all the other vices which he so publicly flaunts, I declare that he is not a Christian, and does not believe in the existence of God, and thus far exceeds the limits of infidelity. End quote. After these opening remarks, he proceeded to make his pitch for a church council at some unspecified neutral location. The remainder of the letter consists mainly of personal appeals to each of the rulers to whom these letters were addressed. To the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian I, he wrote some words reminding him of his duty as emperor, that is to say that he was obliged to save the church from danger. To the Catholic monarchs of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, he asked what use their victory over the Muslims would be if they would allow the church to be destroyed from within. Savonarola reserved his most choice words for King Charles VIII of France. Although he had, in a fit of rage, predicted the king's imminent death not a year earlier, Savonarola seemed to imply that God was giving the king one final chance to fulfill his divinely appointed role as the one who would initiate the wholesale reform of the church. Quote, Surely you could not have forgotten the sacred role which the Lord has bestowed upon you, which means that should you fail to rejoin this holy enterprise, the punishment inflicted upon you shall be far in excess of that which will be meted out to the others. Bear in mind that God has already given you the first sign of his wrath, you who bear the title of most Christian king, you whom the Lord has chosen and armed with the sword of his vengeance. Are you prepared to stand aside and witness the ruin of the church? Are you willing to ignore the grave dangers that imperil her? End quote. The first sign of God's wrath towards King Charles VIII, to which Savonarola was referring, was, of course, the death of the king's infant son. No doubt Savonarola had once again placed his greatest hopes on the king of France. The death of the poor Dauphin Charles had had a sobering effect on his father. No longer abandoning himself to his sumptuous feasts and sexual escapades, his thoughts now dwelled on the state of the church. Savonarola's letters to the princes were tantamount to a declaration of war against Alexander VII. From here on out, the struggle could only end with his death or with his victory. In either event, this was a point from which there could be no turning back. Of course, it did not take long for word of Savonarola's most recent provocation to reach the ears of Alexander VII. The Pope immediately recognized this action as representing the most clear and present threat to his position, and he knew that he would have to take equally drastic action to prevent this letter from circulating. To this end, he worked closely with Savonarola's opponents within Florence to ensure that this letter did not leave the city. Arabiati spies posted at the city gates apprehended anyone wearing the distinctive robes of the Dominican order, but here Savonarola seems to have outwitted them. He still had his contacts in Florence's diplomatic corps, and he attempted to use them to deliver his message. Still, there is no evidence to suggest that Savonarola's letters reached any of their intended recipients. The king and queen of Spain were away at the time and were not able to receive their copies in time. The letters sent to England, Germany, and Hungary seemingly disappeared without a trace. The letter intended for Charles VIII, meanwhile, was intercepted by a group of highway robbers as it passed through Milanese territory. Around this time, a most serious challenge was posed to Savonarola by one of his more vehement opponents, a Franciscan monk named Francesco de Puglia. At some point in the previous year, de Puglia had delivered a sermon wherein he challenged Savonarola to prove the truth of his doctrine through a trial by fire. 
The trial by fire was a rather antiquated practice that was effectively just a form of torture. In a trial by fire, the accused party would typically be made to walk a certain distance over a bed of hot coals. If the accused was able to undergo this ordeal and emerge largely unscathed, it was interpreted to be proof of divine favor. Needless to say, in these more enlightened times, such things were regarded as vestiges of a barbaric past. The last recorded trial by fire in Europe had occurred almost 400 years ago, around the time of the First Crusade. Savonarola naturally ignored this challenge when it was first posed to him back in 1497. Now, it was March of 1498. Since Savonarola had been forbidden from delivering his annual Lenten sermons, he had written scripts of these sermons that were to be delivered on his behalf by clergymen who remained loyal to him and the cause. Savonarola's chosen mouthpiece was his fellow Dominican, a friar named Domenico da Pescia. In his Lenten sermons, Savonarola, through da Pescia, had once again prayed to God that if his, i.e. Savonarola's, doctrine was heretical, that, quote, God will send a fire down upon me, which shall consume my soul in hell, end quote. This was little more than melodramatic flair on Savonarola's part, but Father de Puglia interpreted this as a slight against him, causing him to reiterate his challenge to Savonarola on March 25th. Savonarola likely intended to simply ignore this ludicrous challenge once again, but it seems that he had not counted on the naivete of his protege. Father Domenico had interpreted de Pescia's incitement to a trial by fire as not only a challenge to Savonarola, but to himself as well. As such, four days later, he publicly stated his intention to undergo the trial by fire by himself. De Pescia then indicated his own willingness to participate, with the one emerging from the ordeal alive being proven correct. That day, Landucci recorded his words as follows, quote, That same day, the preacher at Santa Croce, read Francesco de Pescia, declared that he was willing to pass through the fire, accepting the invitation, saying, I believe that I shall burn but I am content to do so for the sake of liberating the people. If he does not burn, then you may believe that he is a true prophet." End quote. When Father Domenico clarified that it would be himself and not Savonarola who would be walking through the fire, De Puglia countered that he would only participate if Savonarola did. De Puglia's incitement to a trial by fire was likely intended as a mere rhetorical device, intended to demonstrate the height of his disdain for Savonarola, and possibly to discredit him when he inevitably declined the invitation. Realistically, this whole controversy should have ended there and then, with Savonarola refusing to participate and admonishing his protege for his brashness. But by this point, many people on both sides seem to have been fully sold on the idea. Much like Father Domenico, many of the more ardent Piagnoni were practically lining up to undergo this trial by fire in Savonarola's place. His opponents, meanwhile, seized on this as an opportunity to either discredit Savonarola or to simply kill him. Either way, the controversy over the matter had reached such a fever pitch that the Signoria deemed it necessary to wade in. The Signoria, which was at this time mainly composed of members of the Arabiati faction, was in favor of proceeding with the trial, seeing it as a convenient way to rid themselves of their Savonarola problem at minimal expense to themselves. Thus, on March 30th, the Signoria handed down their decision. Ultimately, it was determined that Domenico de Pescia should enter the flames on behalf of Savonarola and the Dominicans, and that Giuliano Dondielli would do so on behalf of Francesco de Puglia and the Franciscans. If the Dominican champion should burn to death, 
Savonarola was to be exiled, and vice versa for the Franciscans. In the very likely event that both participants burned to death, or in the equally unlikely event that both emerged unscathed, there was no mention as to what sentence should be passed. But if either representative refused to participate, they would have failed the test. A written agreement was drawn up along these lines, and both prospective champions affixed their signatures to it. There now remained only one final formality to attend to before the trial could proceed. Seeing as how all the participants were clergy, for the sentence to be passed down on any of them, the Pope's approval was required. Thus far, Alexander VII had responded to reports of the ongoing controversy in Florence by stating his public disapproval. However, the Pope privately informed the Signoria that while he could not possibly give his official consent to such a trial, he would also not make an effort to stop it. Thus, the trial was set to proceed as planned. The stakes were as high as they had ever been. Not only would the loss of this trial strike a fatal blow to Savonarola's credibility, it would also result in his exile from Florence, thereby putting him at the mercy of the Pope. Even if he had wanted to stop this ordeal from proceeding, there was little he could do. At this juncture, practically everyone in Florence, from the Piagnoni to the Arabiati, to even the Pope himself, were clamoring for the trial to take place. Even Florence's moderate faction, whom Savonarola derisively referred to as the Tepidi, or the Tepid Ones, were in favor of this. One such individual, a nobleman named Girolamo Russoli, was quoted at this time as saying, quote, All this uproar about a trial by fire is such nonsense. The most important thing we should be discussing is how we can get rid of the friars and non-friars, the Arabiati and the non-Arabiati, so that we can bring peace to our people. As far as I'm concerned, if this trial restores harmony amongst our citizens, then let it go ahead. We should be worried about the well-being of our city, not a few monks being burned." End quote. Savonarola's own thoughts on the matter were rather mixed. On the one hand, he saw this trial for what it was, yet another attempt by his opponents to discredit him, cloaked in a legalistic shroud, and all this being done with a certain flagrant disregard for human life that only disgusted him all the more. Moreover, he felt insulted that the people had insisted on seeing some sort of miracle from him. Had he not already demonstrated the truth of his doctrine sufficiently enough? Besides, he did not believe that he should have to waste his time and risk his life in such a trivial dispute with another Florentine. The actual pressing matter of the day was his ongoing fight against Rome. If it had been one of them who had challenged him toward this ordeal, he would have most gladly participated himself. And yet, Savonarola was greatly moved by the devotion of many of his followers demonstrated in volunteering to walk through the flames on his behalf. To be sure, it was regrettable that Father Domenico was willing to put himself at such a risk for him, but there seemed to be no way to talk him out of this. Such ardor, Savonarola concluded, must be divinely inspired. It seems that in the back of his head, Savonarola kept his faith that his cause was righteous, and that God would help him by offering a sign of this righteousness to the masses of non-believers. And so it was that Savonarola, however reluctantly, gave his own consent to the trial by fire. The day of the trial, April 7th, quickly arrived. At the Piazza della Signoria, a massive platform had been constructed, around which much flammable material had been placed. That morning, a procession of over 200 Dominican monks made its way from San Marco to the Piazza, all the while bearing torches in their hands and chanting the words of Psalm 67, quote, Let God rise up and dispel his enemies, end quote. Father Domenico de Pescia led the procession, carrying on his back a large wooden crucifix. He was followed by Savonarola, who held in his hands the bread of the sacrament of the Eucharist. 
Upon arriving at the piazza, they set up a makeshift altar, and Savonarola said a quick mass. The Franciscans, who had arrived on the scene earlier that morning, merely stood in stunned silence, likely intimidated by the Dominicans' display of courage. Soon enough, both parties made it known that they were ready to begin, but before they could, a series of further controversies delayed the proceedings indefinitely. The Franciscans accused Father Domenico of concealing charms beneath his robes, and he was compelled to change his outfit. Further controversy ensued when the Franciscans objected to him carrying his crucifix into the fire. Savonarola proposed a compromise, that he be allowed to carry the Eucharist with him into the fire. Still, the Franciscans raised their objections once again. For several hours straight, this interminable back and forth continued, as the Signoria tried and failed to make the rival camps see eye to eye on anything. In the absence of the spectacle that they had all gathered to see that day, the crowd outside began to grow restless. At one point, their anger threatened to boil over into a full-on riot. Then suddenly, around dusk, a distant thunderclap rang out, followed by an intense hailstorm. Now that they were physically unable to proceed with the trial, the Signoria called the whole thing off and compelled the crowds to go home. Grumbling amongst themselves, they no doubt argued as to whether the sudden appearance of the storm had been the work of God or the devil. Either way, some higher power had intervened, but whether it was a miracle that had vindicated Savonarola, or rather the work of his demonic arts to prevent his lies from being exposed, of course depended on who one asked. The next day dawned without major incident. It was April 8th, 1498, Palm Sunday. The morning passed quietly, but as the day went on, it was beginning to become apparent that something in the city was deeply wrong. Posters and graffiti denouncing Savonarola and his supporters began to appear on malls across the city, and there were sporadic attacks on Piagnoni in the streets. Things came to a head in the late afternoon. At 4 p.m., Father Mariano Ugi, a member of Savonarola's inner circle, set out from San Marco for Santa Maria del Fiore in order to give the evening mass. He did so accompanied by the usual accompaniment of followers and bodyguards who usually escorted Savonarola and his more prominent followers whenever they left the convent. Upon arriving at the cathedral, they found the benches already full, but it was soon made clear that not all in the congregation were among the faithful. Several of the compagnaci had infiltrated the crowd, and before the priest could even begin the mass, they started to make a loud commotion, yelling insults such as, quote, Get out of here, you sniveling psalm singers, end quote. One of the friar's bodyguards drew his sword and proceeded to drive the compagnaci out of the building, inciting the rest of the crowd to panic. Once outside, the compagnaci began to run up and down the streets, calling out to their supporters, quote, Let's get the friar, on to San Marco, end quote. Before long, the entire city was up in arms. As all this was going on, Savonarola was in San Marco, conducting his own Vesper service, when suddenly he was interrupted by the sounds of angry shouts and stones hurled at the convent's walls. Landucci, who was present at San Marco at the time, described the ensuing scene, quote, The adversaries of the friar, especially the Compagnacci, rushing towards the convent cried out, To the friar and to San Marco! And all the people and children joined with them and ran along with stones, making it impossible for the many men and women who were within the convent to come out. I chanced to be there, and had I not managed to get out through the cloister and fled, I might have been killed." Most of the civilians had been safely escorted through the back door, but the 200 or so friars and 30 of their most diehard civilian followers remained trapped within the monastery. Outside, the Combagnacci had managed to whip the crowd into such a frenzy that those inside naturally began to fear for their lives. 
one of the Piagnoni who had elected to remain with the friars, the former gonfalonier Francesco Valori, entreated the monks to follow suit and flee, but the monks of San Marco refused to do so, instead deciding to stand their ground and defend their monastery. As it would turn out, a few of the friars had been making preparations for such an eventuality as this for quite some time now. They had taken it upon themselves to convert an old, unoccupied cell in the basement into a makeshift armory, containing 18 halibirds, 6 crossbows, 4 arquebuses, and a couple of small mortars, as well as several pieces of armor and the requisite ammunition for these weapons. All this they had done without the knowledge of Savonarola, who no doubt would have put a stop to these activities had he known about them. Indeed, when 16 of these monks did take up arms, Savonarola despaired, shouting, quote, they must not stain their hands in blood, they must not disobey the precepts of the gospel, nor their superiors' commands." End quote. This appeal, however, was in vain, as the friar could scarcely be heard over the roar of the crowd outside. Biographer Pasquale Villari described the scene, quote, It was a strange sight to see these men, with iron breastplates over their Dominican robes and helmets on their heads, brandishing enormous halberds and speeding through the cloister with shouts of long live Christ the King to call their compatriots to arms, end quote. Desperate for cooler heads to intervene, Savonarola ordered that the bells of the convent be rung so as to sound the alarm and summon the civil guards to the scene. At around dusk, several mace-wielding guards did indeed arrive at San Marco, bearing with them a proclamation from the Signoria. The proclamation stated that Savonarola and the other occupants of the convent had twelve hours in which to lay down their arms and vacate the city's premises, never to return. If they happened to remain in the city after this period elapsed, a sizable sum of florins were to be offered for their capture. Rather than producing the intended effect of enticing Savonarola and company to surrender, it only caused them to dig in their heels even deeper, believing the pronouncement to be nothing more than a trick by their enemies. Meanwhile, violence had spread throughout the city, with mobs assaulting the homes of Savonarola's prominent supporters. By this time, Francesco Valori had managed to slip out of the monastery, intending to ride off and to rally whatever Piagnoni he could to aid in the defense of San Marco. He had hardly managed to leave the confines of the monastery before he was seized by two guardsmen, who, after promising that they would spare the life of the former mayor, began to escort him to the Piazza della Signoria. However, while they were en route, an unknown assailant struck him in the back of the head several times with an agricultural implement until he died. The mob then proceeded to attack his house, murdering his wife and making off with whatever they could before setting it alight. This sort of incident repeated itself elsewhere in the city throughout the night. Meanwhile, within the besieged monastery, Savonarola, donning his robes and taking a crucifix in his hand, resolved to go out and face the attackers, saying, quote, Let me go forth, since the storm has only arisen because of me. End quote. Those who were with him refused to let him do this, responding, quote, Do not leave us. You will only be torn limb from limb. And what would become of us once you are gone? End quote. Completely unable to restrain the violence, Savonarola merely looked on in horror as the fighting broke out in earnest. The besiegers had managed to breach the main door, but were quickly chased off by sword-wielding monks. Others were attempting to scale the walls with ladders, whereupon they were struck by roofing tiles hurled down by the defenders. As the attackers advanced into the main nave of the church, a certain Friar Enrico, who over the course of action had seized an arquebus from one of the invaders, now utilized the pulpit to steady his aim as he shot down several of the attackers within the church. Savonarola himself, meanwhile, retreated to the choir area, where he frantically said prayers until the fighting around him got too intense and he was compelled to retreat deeper into the monastery. 
leading with him a small group of his most pacifistic followers into the library, he addressed them with a few final words, quote, Every word I have said came to me from God, and, as he is my witness in heaven, I do not lie. I am departing from you with deep sorrow and anguish, so that I can now surrender myself into the hands of my enemies. I do not know whether they intend to kill me. However, you can be certain that if I die, I shall be able to better aid you from heaven than I have ever been able to do here on earth. End quote. Despite having made this grim farewell address, some of his followers still tried to entice the friar to make an escape, but it was too late at this time. A turncoat within their midst, one Malatestas Sacromoro, spoke up, saying, quote, Should not the shepherd lay down his life for the sake of his flock? End quote. At this time, something seems to have clicked in Savonarola's head, because he immediately ceased his hesitation and began to make his way out from the sanctuary and the relative safety of the library to face his fate. After receiving communion for one last time, he bade farewell to all his loyal followers, many of whom begged to go along with him. Ultimately, Savonarola would only allow one man to accompany him to his fate, Domenico de Pescia, whose unwavering faith during the whole trial-by-fire ordeal had left such a profound impression on him. At this time, a group of guards, led by their captain, Giovanni della Vecchia, had arrived within the monastery, and after having cowed the mob into order, they made their way to where Savonarola and company were hiding. After giving their word that they would ensure that the prisoners would be escorted safely to the Piazza della Signoria, Savonarola and de Pescia stepped forward, whereupon their hands were bound and they were led from the monastery. The siege of San Marco had ended. Savonarola had lost. But, seeing as how this episode has gone on quite longer than I was anticipating, it seems appropriate for us to stop here. In the next episode, two weeks from now, we will cover Savonarola's imprisonment, trial, and execution. And after which point, we will give a brief retrospective on the past nine episodes, as well as a discussion of Savonarola's legacy. Anyway, if in the meantime you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, it is possible to reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you've enjoyed this series thus far, please consider helping out the show via either the Patreon page or the eBay Marketplace, links to both of which will also be in this episode's description. Also consider leaving a review for the show on whichever podcast pl listening platform you prefer to use. Anyway, this has been the Perspectives in History podcast. I'd like to thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.